This is an ABC podcast. Personally, from my perspective, I was taken aback by that research. This is a senior scientist with the US Army. You have to ask yourself when somebody goes about doing something, what's the reason to do it? And I, lately I've seen a lot of people doing things in which they, they just want to be the first to do something, just to do it. Dr Peter Emanuel is alluding to an experiment that sparked controversy last year in science and security circles. American microbiologists had synthetically constructed the horsepox virus. Now that means they'd built it from scratch, stitching together sequences of DNA to make an extinct virus come alive again. But here is the kicker, horsepox is related to one of the world's most deadly diseases in the history of humanity, the virus that causes smallpox. Horsepox itself, it affects only horses and it's no longer in nature. So it's not really something we're particularly concerned about. The concern is really that you're giving a blueprint for how you would create smallpox in the lab. As you can imagine, this frayed nerves and with good reason. Smallpox, of course, is one of the big scourges in history in which the one success story in, in global health, you know, in terms of eradication. And here you now have a scientist or a group of scientists backed by a private company saying, we're going to make the decision about what the risks of this are and what the benefits of this are. And those of us in the security community are saying, you are minimizing those risks and the benefits that we're put on the table were so far removed from the experiment, they were so far down the line, they, they didn't stand out. The horsepox one, I had to ask myself, what was the scientific value that we got from that? They argue, I think, that they wanted to improve the vaccines that are being utilised for smallpox. And have we? I mean, has that manifested itself? Are those vaccines better now? This is much bigger than just scientists. And there's a whole group of people that need to have their perspectives presented. But even more than this, I'm not sure this is a risk-benefit calculation because if it is, we need to know what the benefits are and we need to know what the risks are. And that's one of the things that synthetic biology is raising. There are all these unknown risks. So should some science simply not get done because of those risks? And who decides? Dr Philippa Lensos is from King's College London and her training in science led her to the world of international security policy, biological arms control and disarmament. And she was one of the leaders in a recent closed NATO security workshop in Switzerland that I was led into as the only journalist. The world's best minds in security and synthetic biology were gathered to consider the threats. Welcome to Science Friction. I'm Natasha Mitchell. On the show this week and next, from bio-error to bio-terror. As exciting new tools in biotechnology land in labs, they're raising really serious questions for our security and safety. But they also come with remarkable opportunities. In the simplest terms, uh, synthetic biology is, is applying the principles of engineering to build functionality, to build products using DNA 
for a specific outcome. And so what you're going to get are things that didn't necessarily exist in nature before, chemicals that have specific properties, but it's really applying engineering principles to a purpose-driven building of the life molecules that make you and I together. Where you would take the elements that cause genes to be turned on, cause them to be turned off, and you would assemble them in a certain way, just like you would with a circuit. That makes it different from what we might call genetically modified organisms. We're just trying to replace or delete specific genes. My name is Ed Perkins. I do research in molecular biology, biotechnology, and toxicology for U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. That's the environmental arm of the U.S. Army. And the tools of synthetic biology could help scientists like Ed Perkins build biofuels or biosensors to detect and mop up toxins in the environment or even wipe out invasive species. It's really harnessing the natural biology to do things in a coordinated and structured manner. So some people would say, well, isn't that just genetic modification on steroids? You're taking genes, the stuff of of life and manipulating it, like you would a Word document, for instance, you'd cut and paste. That's sort of what genetic engineering has been doing since the early 80s, you know. And it's what nature has been doing for millennia. That's right. Other people would say, no, there is something significantly different to synthetic biology that relates to scale, that relates to the mentality of the people who are involved and it's really that engineering framework or mentality that is so dominant we can build it we can design we, we can come in and we can take advantage of what has been done in the natural world and now we can direct evolution to fit our purposes you know there is some tension there with biologists who see their world as much messier than that they don't see biology as just an engineering material engineering life is a, a provocative description but also the, the potential benefits are, are huge. And so in everything from medicine to material science, the opportunity to be able to engineer products, it sounds ominous, but it really doesn't have to be. Dr. Emanuel is the senior scientist for bioengineering with the US Army. So he's at the vanguard of developing new applications for synthetic biology. And we'll come to those in the next show. But what if a synthetically engineered organism, something new and strange to nature, escaped a lab unintentionally and wreaked havoc? And as these new techniques become more publicly accessible, could people with nasty intentions use them to commit acts of bioterrorism? I've seen the movies, they give me nightmares just as well as, as anybody. I think that at its core, what worries people about synthetic biology and biology as it pertains to biological weapons is, is the insidious nature of it, the fact there's no way to essentially just shut the door to it. The idea of using disease as a weapon. Biological weapons have long been seen as something kind of abhorrent. Okay, I'm Daniel Feeks. I'm the head of the Implementation Support Unit for the Biological Weapons Convention. I'm in the United Nations Office for Disarmament Affairs. You know, for centuries around the world, you know, across cultures and religions. You can go to 2,000 years back in India, ancient China, you know, the Islamic world. Lots of these cultures, lots of these religions have at their very beginnings. One of the laws that they codify fairly early on is the law against using poison and disease as a weapon. 
in the the Middle Ages, you know, it was chivalrous to be using swords or using lances or something, you know, these kinds of things. But again, even back then, the idea of using disease, you know, it was sneaky, it was underhand, it wasn't, you know, back in those days, it wasn't seen as a gentlemanly way to fight. It creeps into your bed at night, and, and in our minds, we create this disproportionate fear of biology because disease really strikes at the core of humankind. And so I think it's our quintessential spider. Dr. Peter Emanuel from the US Army. It's a fear at our heart that we would essentially just, you know, rot from the inside. And so I understand at the very core why people are terrified of it. And in effect, our job is to make sure that that terror is just that. It's just a, something we're afraid of. It's not a reality. We, we don't want to see that. And we work every day to make sure that somebody doesn't get away with that kind of an action. But state-funded research like that done by the US military or even inside universities raises red flags for Philippa Lensos, perhaps more so than bioterror committed by faceless rogues. There is a risk, there is a threat of a bioterrorism incident involving synthetic biology. But from my perspective, that threat is relatively low. There are other things that we should be much more concerned about. We need to bring in a discussion about state programs or state-backed groups, groups that have the support of states. We need to talk about insiders, the insider threat in state programs, and we need to talk about accidents. In Boca Raton, Florida today, a memorial service for Bob Steele is almost certainly the first American to be killed in a deliberate anthrax Another attack. day of germ warfare and still no sign. The worst case of bioterrorism in this country is close to being The solved. government scientist who took his own life rather than face charges of hatching the diabolical 2001 anthrax attacks. The FBI says the heart of its case is a DNA fingerprint of the anthrax sent through the mail. The 9-11 attacks, 18 years ago this week, ramped up America's vigilance around biological attacks. In the weeks afterwards, you might recall the anthrax-laced letters sent to news outlets and politicians, killing five people. The FBI alleged that they'd come from a senior army scientist in a biodefence facility, but he killed himself before it went to trial. One of the things that we saw is this incredible investment in biodefense in, in the United States, for instance. This has now been echoed in a number of countries around the world. And of course, for people looking in, outsiders will then think, is there something to that? Do we need to also build up? Are they actually not doing this for defensive purposes? Are they developing offensive capabilities in the guise of doing defensive work? What exactly is going on here? And my worry is really around the capacities that are building up. And so if there, for instance, is a change in the very strong norm that we have against the use of biological weapons, that could then fairly rapidly change the threat. But others aren't convinced that the threat is so significant. I'm Todd Kukin. I work in the Genetic Engineering and Society Center at North Carolina State University, mostly in the policy realm, but I work a lot with the growing do-it-yourself biology community globally. Dr. Kukin believes even if someone wanted to cause harm, it would be hard. It's still quite difficult to be able to develop something that would cause the kind of harm that we're talking about. You would still need a significant amount of money, a significant amount of training, and a significant amount of equipment where you wouldn't kill yourself, 
before you were able to actually weaponize what it is that you were trying to sort of do for ill intent. But Todd Kukin shares Philippa Lentzos' concern over who is driving the research in synthetic biology. If I look at where the majority of the funding for synthetic biology is coming from, particularly in the U.S., it's coming from the U.S. Defense Department. So then that makes me question, saying like, okay, well, this is interesting. They are out there saying how worried they are about bioterrorist events, yet they're putting lots, millions, if not billions of dollars into developing synthetic biology. And so you kind of have to then sort of weigh that against what you're hearing. We're not investing billions of dollars in developing biological weapons. That is, is a falsehood. Dr Peter Emanuel from the US Department of Defence says the introduction of the UN Biological Weapons Convention shifted America's priorities. We've terminated our offensive program back in 1974 by decree. And so everything that we do is defensive. Our investments in synthetic biology and our investments in vaccine development and biology in general is for, for, for defensive purposes, to develop materials, develop vaccines. And so people create these statements or these, these fears, but biological weapon offensive work is, is terminated in the Western world. We're not, we're not doing that. But part of the role of defence scientists is to get ahead of the curve in terms of what your opposition, your so-called enemy, might be doing with biological systems. So is the US Army actively engaged in trying to stay ahead in trying to predict how others might use synthetic biology to create biological weapons? Yeah, being able to be predictive is, is actually critical. If I can know what somebody's doing, if I know a situation is evolving and I can get an early jump on it before it becomes a pandemic and I can take early steps, I can mitigate that and so the ultimate impact is gonna be significantly less. Prevention is always better than remediation. But that defensive work doesn't diminish Philippa Lentzos's concern. For her, there's a fine line here, a shaky, even shady line. One of the big problems within the biodefense world is you don't know what the threats might be. So you sort of have to create the threats to ensure that you're able to to be prepared for that. And so you kind of cross that line a little bit into the offensive world. And we're seeing that happening more and more, this encroachment on that gray zone between what is legally permitted defensive work and illegal prohibited offensive work. Do you have examples? One project that has been fairly controversial is uh, called Insect Allies. Uh, It's a DARPA funded program. DARPA is the U.S. Department of Defense research arm, essentially. It's genetically modifying insects in such a way that they would spread viruses to crops with the stated purpose of providing protection to the crops. But you can also very easily imagine how this technology could be misused. So you could create something that would affect your enemy's crops, for instance. Any technology can be misused. Dr. Peter Emanuel. But from my perspective, my biggest concern isn't with the culprit out there that really wants to purposefully misuse something. It's with the unintentional situation where it becomes not bioterror, but rather bio-error. Bio-error. The possibility that innocent scientists might do something wrong entirely unintentionally. Make a boo-boo, spill something, let something out of the lab that they shouldn't have. Everyone knows that accidents happen. For a long time, there's not been much data on the sorts of accidents that happen in biological labs, but we're getting more data now, and we are seeing 
that accidents happen on a regular basis just as they do everywhere else. It's not reassuring enough to hear, yeah, no, we, we're scientists, we got this. On Science Friction on RN, Natasha Mitchell with you, looking at the risks of the emerging science of synthetic biology, from bioerror to bioterror. At the University of Wisconsin-Madison, the buck stops with one woman when it comes to risky research on campus. So my name is Rebecca Moritz. I am the responsible official and institutional contact for dual-use research at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. One I oversee, I'm legally responsible for our Select Agent program, which is one of the largest academic versions of this program inside the United States. People talk about dual-use research. What do you understand that to mean? So the definition inside of the United States that is used is legitimate research that could be misused by people with ill intent. Inside of the United States, we have a very specific set of policies regarding dual use that we need to use based upon 15 agents and seven experimental effects. Scientists make or use chemical and biological agents in their work all the time, but some are deemed riskier than others. And what about the seven experimental effects Rebecca just mentioned? If you create a novel pathogen, for example, or a novel organism, whether you reconstitute something that was previously extinct, if you create antibiotic or antiviral resistance, or you alter something in a way that it can no longer use common detection methods, or if you alter something in a way that allows it to infect or inhabit a different ecological fit, you know, in something that would normally infect someone's brain, infect their entire body, um, those types of things are what we look for. Now, Rebecca's university sparked a major international controversy in 2011 when the lab of a leading flu virus researcher, Yoshihiro Kawoka, modified a bird flu virus in order to make it transmissible in mammals. Similar work was underway at the same time by Dutch scientists with the backing of the World Health Organization. Now, why would they want to do that? Well, if you're going to understand how an avian flu virus like, say, H5N1 can mutate and jump species from birds to humans, then we need to understand what affects how virulent it is and how it's transmitted. Transmissibility was acquired, but virulence went down. And one of the other things that was really interesting that came out of this work is that the stability of the hemagglutinin protein in transmission is incredibly important. And they did not know that in the field until these studies occurred. The hemagglutinin protein found on the surface of the influenza virus is really key to its ability to infect cells. So the stability of that protein could potentially determine whether or not a virus is transmissible via aerosol. Aerosol, now that just means the virus is transmitted by tiny droplets or particles in the air, which we can easily inhale. So that finding, though, ignited an immense debate amongst scientists, and there were scientists who very emphatically said this work should not be happening. It poses too great a risk, a too great a pandemic risk. It could actually be released and uh, spread across the human population. So there were calls at the time for that work to be categorically shut down. How was it justified? There was, a mor there was multiple moratoriums, but the most recent one was a four-year moratorium. And inside the United States, NSAP, the National Scientific Biosecurity Board did a very elaborate risk-benefit analysis. Analysis. It was over a thousand pages long and we had this debate for four years whether or not this research should 
resume. They didn't stop the team led by uh, Dr Kawaka from doing more research on flu and other viruses, did it? No, we could still continue doing um, influenza research, but we could not do anything having to do with gain of function. Gain of function being that you are actually modifying the function of a, of a virus. You are correct, um, which is what what the H5 one gaining the ability to transmit is being is considered a gain of function. Earlier this year, the moratorium on the University of Wisconsin Madison's controversial research into the modified avian flu virus was lifted. The work has resumed. Philip Alensos. The concern is that they're actually generating a greater risk that you, you've created a more dangerous virus than exists in nature. And this could be accidentally released into the population, causing, triggering then, essentially a synthetic pandemic or a man-made pandemic to happen. Is that concern big enough, though, to say that we should not do that work at all, that there's some science that should not be done simply because of the risk it poses? I mean, life is risky. We need to understand the risks of these organisms, uh, and that's what science is there to do. There are other scientists, also virologists, who have a different opinion and say, no, this is too risky compared to the, the benefits. Uh, certainly most people in the security community would say, we think, myself included, these risks are too great compared to the payoff that you get from these sorts of experiments. So the stakes are too high in this field to leave it to the scientists or to leave it to one group alone to make these sorts of calculations and decisions. So what precautions will Rebecca Moritz and others responsible for biosecurity at the University of Wisconsin-Madison put in place? We have incident response plans. We have security plans. We have exposure control plans. Basically, it's my job to look at the science and whatever risk potentially is there, is there a way to mitigate that risk? And if we can't mitigate that risk then we can't do the science. So take us inside that process to give us a sense of how are you making sure that that virus, that modified virus, does not escape that lab or infect one of the players or participants in that research? There's layers and layers of protection. Very, very thick walls. There are submarine doors with double-walled gaskets at the entrances. So the researchers have to wear very specific personal protective equipment. They have to take off every ounce of their street clothes. They put on scrubs, Tyvek, shoes, booties, bonnets, gloves, um, and then they wear something called a positive air purifying respirator. Then depending upon what they're doing in the lab, um, they might have to have a partner with them. The movement inside of the lab itself is very, very specific. And then on the way out, the same dance has to occur. Um, from an exposure control perspective, we plan for obvious potential exposure incidents, but then we also plan for influenza-like development of influenza-like symptoms. Because influenza is a seasonal virus. You can get it from the environment. So, so how would you actually pick it up if it was actually a, a, an infection with yes. that particular virus? Yes, exactly. So if a, if a person would develop influenza-like symptoms, they will be quarantined in place. And we will take samples. They will go directly to um, our state laboratory of hygiene. And one of the other things that's really important is all of these strains that all the mammalian, the one mammalian transmissible strain, it is sensitive to currently available antivirals. That is one safeguard that we have in place. And we also work very, very closely with our infectious disease team at our university's hospital. So accidental release or spillage or a, a needle prick or something like that, clearly you've got that covered. Uh, what about that other risk, which is what if this virus got in the hands of uh, someone, a malevolent actor, for example? The bioterror 
aspect of this, not the bio-error mm -hmm. aspect of your risk assessment? These labs are constantly monitored and um, there is an armed law enforcement response if there is an issue at the facilities. It's also about vetting the personnel involved in the yes. lab, surely. Yes. All of us that work inside of the Select Agent program have to undergo an FBI background check and it has to be renewed every three years. But you know, it comes also comes down to peer and self-reporting and people knowing what's going on and, it, and the insider threat is very much a true threat and we just do the best we can to vet our personnel. Um, we do work very closely with the law enforcement agency at our institution, which is a deputized law enforcement agency, as well as one of our resources. This is a forensic psychologist and we've reached out to him multiple times for working with people who might be having a, a, a struggle in their personal life um, that they maybe shouldn't be working inside of the laboratory. We train our researchers very, very carefully that if there is anything out of the ordinary in the laboratory, they call us immediately. Um, so we're taking the decision-making process away from them. They just have to tell us if something is out of ordinary. They don't have to worry about whether it's a concern or it's not a concern. But what if dangerous work happens in labs or places that aren't so highly scrutinised? How would we know if a terrorist was plotting to unleash a synthetically engineered organism on a population? Biology and its tools and techniques are increasingly becoming democratised. So from open access databases to gene editing being done in citizen science labs by the public, should we be worried? That's next week. What would it take for you to shut down a synthetic biology research effort? There's a couple um, high point factors. Dr Ed Perkins leads a team of US Army scientists using genetics and emerging technologies to investigate and manage environmental issues. Its ability to regenerate itself, reproduce itself, copy itself out so that it can make many, many more copies of itself to survive in the environment infect, get inside of either people or animals or plants and get distributed and cause effects. We work with invasive species a lot. Fish like Asian carp, which has taken over some of our waterways and caused huge problems. Weighing the risks of doing something to that versus having something that you released out there can propagate and start affecting things. So in other words, you're investigating possible biological controls using yeah. synthetic biology. Right. So those, if we start seeing things that are very effective that we can't control, then that's a major reason for stopping until we can at least increase security around it or question whether we should really be doing it. There's ethical considerations on whether some of that stuff should really be done. That if we find it has a new characteristic, we might question whether we should really be doing that or not. But who gets to ask and answer those questions? Is there any international oversight of what research in synthetic biology is allowed? Dr Philippa Lensos from King's College London. The Biological Weapons Convention prohibits the development, the production, the stockpiling and the transfer of biological weapons. There's one word that's missing in there and that's research. That was quite deliberate because when the diplomats were negotiating the Biological Weapons Convention in the late 60s, early 70s, they realized it's far too difficult to identify the pieces of research that could lead directly to biological weapons development of particular concern. So they said, we'll just ignore the whole area of research. But that's kind of come back to bite us now because there are definite 
bits of research that we're more worried about than other bits of research, right? But how do you identify those bits of research? So when, for instance, the horsepox uh, experiment came to light, there wasn't a sort of international advisory body that could discuss it and figure out what to do. Uh, we are missing advisory boards looking at the security perspective. We are all familiar with ethics boards that look at this from an ethics perspective. The What happened in the horsepox and in the in the uh, Kawaoka gain-of-function experiment, the, the flu experiment, was that this was discussed at the WHO. But the WHO is looking at this from a health perspective. They're pushing a health agenda and, and has its own particular agendas and interests but not from a security perspective. So that is something at the international level that's very much missing. Philippa Lentos, talk to me on Twitter at Natasha Mitchell and share the podcast far and wide, won't you? More details on the Science Friction website as ever. And thanks to studio engineer Jules McKenzie. See you. Hey, Bernie Hobbs here. If you want a head of science you can really sink your teeth into, Occam's Razor. It's short public talks given by scientists and people who love science. Some are funny, some are mind-blowing. They're all great stories. Search for Occam's Razor in the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts.